0: Now then, let's turn uh, to the passage we read there in the book of Ruth, in chapter 1, page 306, and verse 14, where we're told uh, concerning the two young women that they lifted up their voices and wept again. And then solemnly, Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, last time we were together around this portion of truth, we saw these two young women setting out with their mother in law from Moab. To the Promised Land. And you'll remember in the context of the book that that journey is essentially a spiritual journey. And um, as we saw in many ways, they've already traveled some distance on a spiritual journey in God's goodness and mercy. They have moved out of the darkness of Moabite idolatry. And they have been brought into a Christian family. These two young women, they have married two young men from Israel. They possibly both professed faith in doing that, although we can't know that for certain. And although it was a, a backsliding on the pam- family's part to move from Israel to Moab, we saw that and I think proved it. Although it was a backsliding, nonetheless, they were brought into a Christian family, and that was a a great blessing under God. Now, as so often happens, in fact, in some ways, as always happens, God brings matters to a head. He does that with all of us, particularly when his Spirit has been striving with us. He brings matters to a head, and he puts two tests before these women. The first test is essentially a call to go to the land of promise. They have an opportunity to go. Naomi is now resolved to go herself to the land of her fathers, but more importantly, to the land of promise, to the promised land where the people of God dwell and where the public worship of God is held, a land full of blessings and privileges. And uh, she's resolved to go. But, of course, for the daughters-in-law, this is now a test for them. Do they want to go? And again, in the context of the book, and spiritually, this choice for them is a very spiritual choice. It's a call to full, unreserved commitment to the God of Israel, the God of Naomi, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as we know him, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, No halfway houses, no halting or lingering between two opinions, but an unreserved and complete commitment to follow the Lord and to identify with his people. That's the choice that lies before them. Now, of course, as we saw last week, uh, they began very well because we're told in verse 6 and in verse 7 that they both set out. In verse 6, she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return. And in verse 7, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. In other words, they are not there as escorts to see her to the border of the promised land. Both young women have the purpose to set out for the land of Judah themselves. And again, as we saw last time, and forgive me, but it is necessary just to recapitulate these things. As we saw last time, uh, just when they are about to enter the land, they're confronted with a second test. Again, uh, that is what happens so often with us. When we are inside of the gate, uh, inside of the cross, When we're at the very point of entry, the test comes more sharply. Naomi turns round and calls them to return. Now we looked at Naomi's motive there, and I think her motive is a good motive. She wants to test what they're really made of. Do you really want to come? Whose people do you really want to live with? Whose standards do you want to live by? Whose God do you really want to worship? Jesus did that with his own followers. You'll remember how he turned around and said, Unless you love me more than your mother or father or son or daughter, says, don't follow me. Sit down first and consider the cost. Have you got enough resources to build the tower that you're just starting to build? Are you able to fight the fight? that you're setting out to fight? Well, think about it, he said, because unless you love me more than your father and mother and son and daughter, you are not worthy of me. And uh, every time we come near this gate ourselves, as you come near it this morning, even by being under the preaching of this particular passage of God's Word, you are coming to the gate, you are coming to the entrance place, into the Christian life. Every time you come near it, the starkness of the choice comes before you and the cost comes before you. And it's only right that I put it before you. The gate, after all, is a gate of self-denial. The cross is a place where you must leave the old life and embrace the new. The gateway to the kingdom of heaven is called repentance. And you can only enter it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some way or another, I don't know exactly in what way, but in some way or another, you are being called to pluck out your right eye or to cut off your right hand or to cut off your right foot. There is some sacrifice that God is calling you to make. And woe betide you if you don't make it. As we'll see in a moment, So at the entrance to the promised land, both Orpah and Ruth have a decision to make. And at first, it appears they're equally committed to make the right one. We're told in verse 9 that when Naomi kissed them both, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said, surely we will return with you to your people. They're both emotionally committed to returning. They can cry about it. We want to go in. We want to believe. We want to be Christians. They're even volitionally committed in their wills, at least it appears to be. That's what they say in verse 10. We will return with you to your people. And they both meant that. Meant that. There's no... Reason to go behind that or to second guess it, they both meant it. We have to take it at face value. They somehow both want to go. But famously or infamously, as you know, in an unexpected turn of events, suddenly there's a cleavage. Orpa kisses and she leaves, whereas Ruth on the other hand cleaves. And their destinies pretty much hang on that. And, of course, the real question for, for you and for me, the crucial question, is why the difference? And I'll tell you why that question is particularly significant, and maybe for you and me, because their circumstances are deliberately portrayed in the Scripture as being identical outwardly. No, of course, I know that no, no two people's circumstances are absolutely identical outwardly. But nonetheless, Scripture has so described these two girls as to make them pretty much identical in their thinking, in their background, in everything to do with their circumstances. They're from the same idolatrous cultural background. They have married into the same family. They married brothers They both had identical experiences. Their husbands died pretty soon after they were both married. They saw the same witness from their father-in-law, from their husbands. They saw the same witness in the life of their mother-in-law, Naomi. They are resolving to go to the same land, to the same part of the land, to worship the same God and to live with the same person. There's no difference. But yet the difference is stark. One leaves and another cleaves. It's as though the Bible is telling us not to look at their circumstances for the reason for their decision, but to look inside, to look into the heart of Orpah and to look into the heart of Ruth. That's where we find the difference. And, of course, it's a remarkable thing to ourselves, too. I mean, we, you can come from the same family as somebody else. There's nothing different. You've seen the same life, the same witness, the same testimony. You've gone to the same church, heard the same sermons, the same ministers, same mother, same father. One of you's leaving and another is cleaving because there's a difference in the heart. What's going on? Well, I wonder if we have a hint in the words of verse 18. After Ruth's famous resolve... And her plea to her mother-in-law, don't ask me or urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you or so on. But where you die, I will die. Then in verse 18, when Naomi sees that she is determined, she stops speaking to her. There's nothing wrong with the translation determined. It's fine and good enough. Except that the way we use it sometimes almost indicates a kind of stubbornness. Oh, you're a a determined person. But, of course, there's no trace of stubbornness in the word here. Steadfastly minded or even resolved. It's an interesting fact that the Hebrew expression means that when she saw that she was strong in herself, when she saw that she was strong in herself, That's the idea here, you see. It's not determination, well, I'm going to do this, or I've started, so I'll finish. Not as such. Like I say, it's not wrong, but there's just something more in it than that. It's a resolve. She's fully persuaded about what she's going to do. She has strength in herself, and Naomi sees that, and she leaves it be. That's what we must have, too, to enter into this straight gate. If you're going to become a Christian, you need strength. You need resolve. You need spiritual determination. You need to know what you're going to do, not humming and hawing about it. This isn't for the half-hearted. It's not for people whose lives are full of ifs, buts, and maybes. It's something that you've got to go for, and you're determined to go for it. You're determined in the right way for the right reasons, as we'll see in a moment. But it's quite obvious that Ruth is resolved and strong, but Orpah on her part, part, although she looks committed, she cries about it, she can kiss, but she's not really committed, and therefore she goes back. Let's look at both. First, Orpah. Deep down, still a Moabites. The end of the day, when the push comes to the shove, they are her people. The land of Moab is her land. Chemosh is her God. And therefore, instead of having the spirit of Abraham that was able to get out of Ur of the Chaldees and out of the idolatry and to go to the promised land that God would show him, or instead of having the spirit of Moses who, who looked, as the Hebrew tells us, sorry, as the Greek tells us, who looked hard at the choices before him, born a prince of Egypt, raised in a palace, and seeing the people of his mother and father Slaves in mud huts, under the lash and under the whip, he looked hard, and he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of the sin of sin. She didn't have the spirit of Moses, she didn't have the spirit of Abraham. Orpa had the spirit of um, the ancestor of Moab. Who was the ancestor of Moab? Who was the grandmother? Of uh, the father of the Moabites, Lot's wife. Lot's wife. The Moabites came from her. Moab was essentially her grandchild and his children's children. And the fact of the matter is that the spiritual affinity between that mother of the Moabites and this daughter of the Moabites is just uncanny. And it's deliberately drawn for us in Scripture by the hand of the Holy Spirit. You'll remember Lot's wife. Well, I hope you do because you're told to do. Christ told you to do it. Remember Lot's wife, he said. Remember Lot's wife. She, of course, uh, lived in Sodom. She lived there with her husband, Lot. And she heard God's call to leave the city because God was going to destroy it. It was to become effectively the city of destruction. And she was called to flee it, to put her fingers in her ears, like, famous, like John Bunyan famously portrayed Christian leaving the city of destruction, with his family calling him to stay. And he had to put his fingers in his ears and to flee out of it. Well, she was called to flee out of Sodom. And God told her, Not to stop, not to stop in the plane, not to stop halfway, and not to look back, not to look back. But you know the story, you know the history. In the plane, she turned round and she looked back. Not just with her eyes, really, but with her heart. I mean, that's the point. If her heart hadn't been in Sodom, she wouldn't have bothered looking back. But her treasure was there, and her heart was there also, so she turned and around and looked back. She looked back with desire. She looked back with longing, because that's who she was, and that's who she wanted to be, and here she is running out of it. For all the world, like Lot, a child of God, but the reality kicks in halfway through when she looks round effectively to say, That's my land, that's my city, that's my people, that's all I've known, and that's all I loved. And of course, she was entombed. She was rained on by bitumen and salt, and entombed or encased in that salty bitumen rock deposit. Somewhere still there, ossified, mummified. and we 're told to remember her. I mean she 's mummified there, but she 's mummified in god 's word too. she 's entombed in here. She stands like a beacon, warning us against turning back when we 've made some progress forward. And in that respect, in that respect um, She's in the company of quite a lot of people in Scripture, is she not? The ranks of those who nearly made it, maybe like you. I'm conscious I'm talking today to people who who are nearly there. You're not there, and you might never get there. You might never. You've come close. You've moved. There's no doubt that this girl moved. She never made it. Because she stopped in the plane and she looked back when she ought not to have looked back. She's not on her own. The five foolish virgins looked like the five wise ones. Absolutely so. Out they went enthusiastically to greet the bridegroom when he came. But they hadn't taken oil. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared for the long haul. And so, when the feast was held, they were excluded on the outside. When the father said to his two sons, Go and work in my vineyard, the elder son said, I go, sir. But he never went. The rich young ruler wanted a Christian life. He came up to Christ and he fell on his knees in front of him, called him good master, and asked him a good question. But he wasn't prepared to pay the price. He went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And you know I could go on and on and on listing people to you who came halfway and went back. People went a lot closer than that. Judas kissed the lips, kissed the cheek of our Lord Jesus Christ on his way to hell. And you may say, but is that too harsh a judgment on Orpah? I mean, do we know that Orpah is really making a a spiritual choice here? Is it not possible that Orpah has come to faith, but she's just simply choosing to live in Moab? Well, um, three things about that. Uh, First of all, a general point. And the general point is this that we're always, I suppose, reluctant to face up to the truth of people being lost and perishing. In that respect, the wish is father to the thought. We don't want to contemplate her being lost. We'd like to think that no one was lost. We'd like to think that hell is empty. But people are lost, and hell is not empty, and we're as well realizing like that that. Ordinary people, as we see them, are in hell, as we speak. People do go forward and do go back. That's a general point. More specifically, in the light of the wider story here, no. The contrast between Orpah and Ruth isn't just a contrast between somebody who wants to live in Moab and somebody who wants to live in Israel. For any favor, what's the point of that? It's very plain when Ruth arrives in Israel. Boaz says to her, You have chosen to come under the wing of the Lord God Almighty. He sees her choice as a spiritual choice, and in the same way we're to understand Orpah's choice as a spiritual choice too. But to be honest, there is one simple expression that shuts that door anyway for us, and it's the judgment of Naomi when she turns round to Ruth, in verse 15, and says to her, "Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And if we're sensible about it, if we're spiritual about it, we'll freeze at that statement. We'll shiver at that statement. Because that's how Naomi understands it. And that's how so we're to understand it too. In other words, Naomi says, that's really the choice that I confronted her with. I know that. That's the choice that faced her, and that's the choice that she made, her people and her gods. And doesn't that sound like an epitaph? I said that to you some time ago in connection with Demas, when Paul was talking about the people who forsook him. He said that, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And I said to you, that sounds like an epitaph too. This certainly sounds like an epitaph. She's gone to her people, and she's gone to her gods. She came so far, and she went back. And friends, if we profess the Lord, and if we choose to go back, are we not frightened by the words of the Apostle Peter, who speaks of such people as being like dogs, Who go back to their own vomit, and pigs after a wash straight away to their wallowing in the mire. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let me remind you of what John Bunyan said They fall deepest into hell who fall into it backwards. They fall deepest into hell who fall into it backwards. Enough said. Orpah leaves. But second, Ruth cleaves. It's pleasant to move away from the one and to move to this. I don't want you to think it was an easy choice for her to make. Christianity is never an easy choice as such. So many questions. And, you know, when we come to the gate, when we come to the place where a decision is to be made, man, these questions are so big. The challenges and the difficulties. I mean, think about it. What's our life in Israel? Is everyone in Israel going to be like Naomi? Probably not. For every Naomi there, there's probably going to be 10 Israelites who simply will never forget what the Moabites did to Israel a long, long time ago, when they refused them a passageway into the promised land and more or less committed them to wandering in the wilderness. There's many a self-righteous person who'll never forget that. Living on history, living on the past, living on grudges and vendettas, Moabites, what are you doing here? She'll always be Ruth the Moabitess to too many people in Israel. We have to be aware that we don't treat other people like that ourselves. Treating people as outsiders just because of where they come from or what their background or what their culture is. We wouldn't like to be treated like that ourselves. I come from a people who don't belong here. Many of my own people Way up north, we thankful that they found hospitality and kindness in Glasgow. What of her own family? She's leaving them behind, too. As I said last week, chapter 2 makes plain that her own father is still living. Choices, 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 uncertainties, difficulties. I said last time that the closer you get to the gate, the harder the choices are. And that's true of of Ruth, because there's one thing that makes her choice twice as hard as it was before. And what's that? Orpah going back. If, If Ruth somehow had made the decision first, it would have perhaps been a bit easier. But do you notice how it's toughened by the fact that Orpah goes a different way? How much easier the choice would be if Orpah had said, I'm staying with you she didn't you see and the power of influence is so strong so strong on you it's kept you back for years maybe you've been walking around this gate thinking about it looking at it reading its title having a wee glance at what might be beyond but no the choices are so difficult it's the influence of your age group that's called peer pressure the influence of your friends the influence of people who have shown you kindness that's difficult the influence of people who have had shared experiences with you for many years. She's got all that. You see, if it's just a, an amorphous crowd that you've got to dissociate with, maybe you can do that. And, and maybe you're mature enough to be able to do that. I mean, some of us, sorry to say, some of us poor, unfortunate humans are so pathetic that we just affiliate with a crowd till the end of our days. But maybe just some level of maturity or some life experience has taught you that it's not always too good to go with a crowd, and maybe you can disassociate yourself from that. But this is someone you've lived with, someone you've been married uh, with in the same house, uh, you've been pre- bereaved together, you've wept together, you've had hardship together, you've made difficult choices before together, and you've trod the same path together, and now can you separate It's not so easy, is it? It's not so easy. She's going back. She's going. She's making a different choice. We thank God that there's no record anyway in the Scriptures that Orpah made any attempt to drag Ruth with her. Of course, that's not to say necessarily that it didn't happen but we have no reason to believe that it did and that's something to be thankful for if you want to make the choice having traveled with someone so far to go back go back as naomi said go back to your people to your gods but for any favor don't pull anyone else with you and i sometimes see some of you pulling people in bad directions and i've seen it all my life I've seen people choosing to go back and dragging people down the same roads, back to the dance halls, back to the pubs, back to the activities where you felt so free. Go yourself. Travel alone. Don't, tra- don't take anyone else with you. Especially don't take anyone else who's walking round this gateway and wanting to go through it. Don't let that be on your hands. It's the power of a friend's example. Christ, of course, tested the disciples in exactly the same way. When everybody left the synagogue that day because they didn't like the sermon, John chapter 6, Jesus turned round to the disciples, just 12 of them left in the building, as far as we could see. The, the large synagogue in Capernaum, just 12 left. And Jesus turns round and said, Do you also want to go? Will you also go away? Peter, of course, stood on behalf of the twelve and said, To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's good and true. It's right, it's fair, it's beautiful and admirable. And it was a hard thing to say in its own way. Although, you know, I, I can't get past the fact that the attraction to the Lord was so great that it trumps all that. Fair enough. But suppose for a moment, suppose John had turned round and gone out. Suppose Andrew, Peter's brother, had said, Well, I'm going to go with the majority here. I'm just going to go where I can stay and be comfortable in Capernaum and not have a hard time. How much harder would it be then for Peter to say, To whom can we go for you have the words of eternal life? You see, you've got to be resolved. You've got to be strong. You've got to be fully persuaded. With the full persuasion that comes when your heart is one. When love is there. When you don't just admire Naomi and wish you could be like Naomi. When you're not just thankful to Naomi, but when you love Naomi because you love Naomi's heart. And because you know Naomi loves God and you love the God that Naomi loves only that bond will secure the passageway from Moab into Israel. That alone will get you through the straight gate, the genuine gate that brings you into the Christian life and onto the Christian journey and into the true heaven. That alone, that kind of commitment to God, a commitment to His people because they're committed to God. It's not even an affection for the people of God. It's more than that. In other words, just as Orpah's leaving was a spiritual leaving, so Ruth's cleaving is a spiritual cleaving. Zechariah speaks of a day to come when people will get a hold of the garment of a Jew and say, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's what's going on here, you see. Ruth is cleaving to Naomi, not just because she likes her, or admires her, but because she has heard and known that God is with her. And she wants Naomi's God. That's the God that she wants to follow unreservedly, wholeheartedly. And that's the only way to follow him. It's not natural love, this. It's spiritual love. She's chosen Naomi's God. And she's chosen Naomi's people. That's why the words are so beautiful. It's not because they're just beautiful in the English language. It's not just because they're so beautiful emotionally and poetically, but they're so spiritually charged. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God. My God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so. Jehovah, the covenant God, do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. That's what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. It takes your heart. It takes your heart. It doesn't mean that she wasn't still fearful. The future is still a great unknown. But that's not the point, you see. Um, She's making the only calculation she can make. And she makes it right. I'm with God, come what may. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you may be hindered at the thought of what the cost might be of um, coming to Christ and coming out on his side. I think I mentioned here some time ago something that stuck in my own mind. I read it in Martin Lloyd-Jones, how he was uh, speaking to... Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a Welsh preacher, but well-known for preaching in England uh, right up to the, in, through the 60s and the 70s and the very, very early 80s. But he describes uh, a woman that he met who was beginning to doubt her Christian profession because, well, when he spoke to her, it was very plain that she she couldn't be sure that she would die for the Lord Jesus Christ. She she didn't think she had that kind of metal, that kind of strength, and therefore she said, I, I can't really be a Christian. Now, you may... Be afraid as well that you just can't walk this road. It's somehow too tough and uh, there's too much involved and you, and you just can't do it. Well, don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. Don't borrow trial for tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's what the Lord said. And sufficient for the day is the trial thereof. At the straight gate today, at the narrow gate that leads... Uh, To everlasting life. You're not required to make tomorrow's choices. Just today's, that's all. Whatever self-denial you're being confronted with right now is the only one that you have to deal with. It's the one that matters. It's the one that God's bringing before you. Not tomorrow. I mean, leave tomorrow's. Don't worry about it. Honestly, don't worry about it. Deal with what you have today. There's a difference between taking necessary forethought and having foreknowledge. Um, you don't want to press that too philosophically, maybe, but in the sense in which I mean it, it's, it's valid, which is not a, maybe a fair thing to say either, but uh, you know what I mean. There is a difference between forethought, legitimate forethought, and foreknowledge. Um, we cannot have foreknowledge of the way that God is going to take us. We just can't. We no idea what's to come. But we need to take the necessary forethought. In other words, to say, this requires my life, my all. However that's manifested, I don't know. But it requires my life, my all. Therefore, am I prepared to give my life for my all? And the acid test is whatever is confronting you right now. Fact is, friends, <laughs> to be quite honest, I don't know. You, you may be the same, but I'm not really martyr material myself either. I'm not. I can well understand what that woman meant. The very thought of a rack or the thumbscrew turns my blood cold. If you are to ask me, or if the Lord was going to ask me, like he asked Peter that morning, do you love me? I would have to say what Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. A very profound answer in the circumstances. Because a few days earlier, Peter Uh, put it a little differently. He said to Jesus, he said, I will follow you to prison and I'll follow you to death. I will lay down my life for your sake, he said. And just later that night, the test came and he failed. That steely resolve just melted beside the hostility of the campfire. And the air that just a few hours before had rung with, I'll die for you, rang with the oaths and the curses of a man who was affirming that he never knew Jesus at all. And when Jesus said to him later, well then, Simon... Do you love me? He said, yes. I'm not going to say I'll die for you. I'm not going to say anything about whether I'm willing to go to prison for you or nothing, nothing. But you know that I do love you. And although I am willing to die for you, I have become so confronted with my hopelessness. And my weakness, that I'm not, I'm not going to put it like that anymore. But I know uh, that I want to be able to die for you. But I have learned that I need your strength to be able to die for you. And sufficient to the day is that. You know that I love you. And of course, It didn't take too long for that trial to come Peter's way. Christian tradition records that Peter was crucified for the faith and that he was crucified upside down. The man who couldn't die for him when he thought he could died for him when he thought he couldn't. There's a lot in that. It's the difference between self-confidence and confidence in God. When God's asking you today to walk through the straight gate, he's not asking you to make decisions about every event that may or may not come because you don't don't know them. But he is asking you to have the legitimate forethought, forethought to say, look, I am walking through here as someone who is prepared to put you first. Now, you help me now to put you first at all times and on every occasion You give me that strength because I have not got it. Right now you are calling me to do one thing. And I am plucking out that eye and I am cutting off my hand. Now you help me as I go forward to do the rest. That's all. That's all. And Ruth was resolved to do exactly that. Trust God for tomorrow. If you can't do that, you're walking away, right? You're walking away, and you're going back, and you're walking back from the entrance point. Woe oh, betide you. I don't know if you'll ever see the gate again. But Ruth walked through it, and wonderfully, eh, God prepared a path for her, as he will for you and for me. Let us pray. Lord, grant us grace to recognize the great call upon our lives and the grace, too, to recognize that the one who calls us through that gate will keep us on the way. There is a promise that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us. So in the knowledge of that alone, help us to step forward in the strength of God the Lord. O oh, help us to learn from these two young women to follow the example of one to reject that of the other in our savior's name amen our last psalm is psalm 45 on page 270 verse 10. The tune is Malan. Uh, this, this short passage, these verses bring before us very clearly the need, the need to leave and to cleave. Not leave like Orpah did, but leave Moab and cleave to Naomi, to God, to Israel. O daughter, verse 10, take good heed, incline and give good ear. Listen well. You must forget your kindred all, and father's house most dear. When you make that choice, thy beauty to the king shall then delightful be. And you can be sure of that, that God delights in those who take this choice. And do thou humbly worship him because thy Lord is he. And then the strangest, most unexpected people shall respond to that choice. The daughter then of Tyre, she will come, with a gift, and all the wealthy of the land shall make their suit to thee, the daughter of the king all-glorious is within, and with embroideries of gold, that's divine grace, her garments wrought have been. She cometh to the king in robes with needle wrought, and the virgins that do follow her shall unto thee be brought. Uh, 10 to 14, let's stand to sing.